0: It's become a a recent development for me to really enjoy reading fiction books. Um, Growing up, I wasn't super into reading. And then I eventually got into reading, but I I really only read theology books. If it wasn't a theology book, I just really wasn't interested in it. So I did a lot of reading, but it was a very kind of narrow subject. But it wasn't until just recently in my life, I'd say within the last two years, that I've just really fallen in love with reading stories. And so I've been trying to sort of binge a lot of classics that I've missed out on um, for most of my life. And I've just read some incredible books. These stories are just so captivating. And there's something about a good story that captivates people. This is why even people who don't like to read typically still like going to the movies. Because we just, we enjoy a good story. And today we are going to be reminded that the God that we worship is indeed an author. He is indeed a storyteller. And that in fact, he is the greatest storyteller that the world has ever seen. And the story of the gospel specifically is the vindication or the proof that our God is such an amazing, brilliantly wise storyteller. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, please? Ephesians chapter 3. And when you get there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We will be reading verses 8 through 13 this morning. And thus saith the Lord, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? As we discussed last week, Paul is sort of continuing this large rabbit trail, this large uh, side note. What he begins in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1, he does not actually pick up until Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. And so really, last week and this week we talked about is this long side note. And if you recall, the reason he broke into it was because halfway through his train of thought, he wasn't sure if these particular Ephesians really knew what his job was as an apostle. And not just an apostle, but the one apostle who was specifically commissioned to be the light to the Gentiles. So he interrupts his train of thought to remind them of the overall apostolic duty, which was to reveal the new covenant, was to take God's revelation that he had hidden before and reveal it, and specifically remind them of his individual purpose to them. To be the apostle that came to them to bring the new covenant. To minister to them the word of God. He begins in our section here by reminding them of this incredible grace that was given to him. This grace to be this special apostle who is allowed to preach the word of God. And he begins by reminding them that the reason this is such a grace is because he is the one who is least deserving of this duty, right? He says in, very, in verse 8, to me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This is not Paul's mock humility, right? He's not trying to brag through putting on the appearance of humility. Paul really believes this. This is a constant theme for Paul. He says it in many of his other letters. For example, in another place of the New Testament, he describes himself as the least of all the apostles. In another place, speaking to Timothy, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. Paul truly saw himself as being the least deserving of this special role. And he tells us in another place in Scripture why that is. And many of you might be thinking about it. It's because he uniquely persecuted the Christian church prior to his conversion. Right? Paul was not just some unbeliever. He wasn't just some Jewish unbeliever. Paul was a Pharisee who was intentionally with hatred and malice towards Jesus, attacking, persecuting, and imprisoning Christians. And so he knew that that alone truly disqualified him from ever being worthy to have some special privilege in God's kingdom. But thankfully to Paul, the God he was converted to is a merciful God. The God he was converted to is not a petty God a God of great grace and mercy. So even though Paul is right, he did disqualify himself. God is a God of grace. He forgave him and transformed him and gave him this special privilege anyway. And so he reminds us yet again, just as we saw last week, of what this special privilege is. And what does he say in verse 9? What is his duty even though he's the least of all the saints to have this duty, what has been the duty entrusted to him? He says in verse 9 and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Last week we learned that the gospel was something that God has planned from before creation but he hid it he hid his plan, and, and Paul describes it here as hidden himself, meaning he was the only one who knew about it. He, we, we, we discussed how he did reveal it in types and shadows in the Old Testament. The gospel was partly revealed in the Old Testament, but the true fullness of the gospel is something hidden in God. It was in the mind of God and nowhere else. Not even the angels knew the plan of the gospel. This was something only God knew. And Paul's job as the apostle to the Gentiles was to make this revelation that he received known to everyone. Not just the Jews, but to bring to light for everyone the unfolding of this story that God wrote before the foundation of the world when he created everything. And that is quite a privilege. Think about it. Think about receiving directly from Christ a divine and hidden plan that not even the angels knew about. Keep your marker here. Turn to First uh, Peter chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles. Keep going towards the end of your New Testaments. J- right past James. <coughs> Just to get a glimpse of, of how precious this, this duty is that Paul's been given, read with me in First Peter chapter 1 verses 10 through 12. in all the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We don't have time to go through this entire passage, but here's what Paul's saying. This message was so, so incredible and important and hidden that even the prophets themselves, as they were writing about these types and shadows, didn't fully understand what they were writing. That even they searched and inquired, like, what is God doing? What's the plan here? What's the story here? The prophets wanted to know this and it was hidden from them. And then he goes on to tell us that these are things that even angels long to look. Right? The, 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 the metaphor here is like cheating on a test. You're in class and you're, you're peeking over. You're, you're trying to look and find the answers. Even angels are on the edge of their seats viewing the story of the world unfold. And they're excited and they're anxious and they're looking into, Oh my goodness, what is God up to? What is he doing? This is, as Paul says in verse 9, a mystery hidden in God that even the prophets, when they wrote in types and shadows about it, longed to know more. And the angels peeked over and they, they, they tried to find out they wanted to know more, but this was hidden in God. And then suddenly Jesus Christ appears and he tells Paul this great old secret. And Paul now has the duty, the persecutor of the church, now has the privilege To take this secret story and tell it to everybody. This is incredible. But that is essentially, up to this point, really a summary of what we learned last week. So the newness for our sermon this morning is found in verse 10. Go back to Ephesians 3 and read verse 10 with me. This is where Paul gets to the heart of the matter. Why is Paul telling all this? Why is he going on about his duty and the secret hidden in God? And what, what's the, the, the so what for the whole apostolic mission? And he tells us in verse 10 that in verse 9, his job was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden in God. Now, why? Why is God doing this now? Why is he doing it in this way? Why through Paul? Well, verse 10 is the so what? Verse 10, so that... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is the key verse to our entire passage. It's the so that. Here's why I'm telling you all this. This is why God did all this. So that. For this purpose, this is what God is up to. And so this really is the primary theme of the passage. And what is it? The wisdom of God. That's what this whole sermon is about today. The wisdom of God. The reason God revealed His plan in the way He did, and the reason He instrumented it first in types and shadows, and then through apostles. Like, why didn't He just dump it? Right? Why not just bomb it on Adam and Eve in the garden? Boom. Crystal clear. Why go through all this trouble? Well, we can give a very basic summarized answer to that in Paul. To make known His manifold wisdom. God wants us to see the story. He wants us to see it unravel. He wants to see all these things that used to confuse us, and then we go, oh, I get it now. You see, as we watch God's story unfold throughout redemptive history, his manifold wisdom is brought to light. In other words, God did things the way he did it because he wanted us to see his wisdom. God wants us to know that he is wise. He wants the whole world to see, as Paul calls it, his manifold wisdom. His sermon is all about the wisdom of God. Let's take a step back, though, and just briefly talk about what is wisdom. It's one of those words that you know what it is when you hear it, but it's kind of hard to define. It's, it's, it's hard sometimes to distinguish the difference between wisdom and knowledge, for example. But there is a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Uh, one of my favorite definitions, I'm not sure if this is super scholastic, but one of my favorite definitions is that knowledge, wisdom is what you do with knowledge. And wisdom is what you do with knowledge. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And typically there's a funny example that follows between the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is actually a fruit. Wisdom is not putting tomatoes in your fruit smoothies. That's the difference between wisdom and knowledge. How do we understand wisdom? Well, theologians have been discussing this for a long time. And I think if you were to summarize what most theologians have said throughout history, they would typically define wisdom as something like acting for a right end. Or observing all circumstances for an action. Or acting according to right reason and judgment of things. There's this idea of knowing exactly what to do in any given situation. Knowing how to bring your purposes about. How to accomplish what you wish to accomplish. That takes wisdom. It's accomplishing the right end. And so God in the gospel, through the church, he is showing us his wisdom. How he was able to overcome all evil, all hostility, and bring his people together in one body. That's been what we've been focusing on for so long. That's how Paul is sort of defining the gospel here. sinners of both Jews and Gentiles being reconciled together in one body, and we call that the church. And that is why it is through the church, as we see the birth of the Christian church, we see the gospel in the world, every single person should look at that and say, God is infinitely wise. I cannot believe he figured this out. I cannot believe he did this. He is showcasing the wisdom of the gospel. You don't have to turn there, but I would encourage you to maybe go home today and read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is a big theme for Paul in those two chapters about how the gospel is wisdom from God. It is the wisdom from God. And in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, what Paul's seeking to do is if the gospel is so manifold in wisdom, if it's so wise, why don't more people see it? And he explains the the spiritual rebellion underneath resistance to the gospel, which is why the world does not see the wisdom of God in the gospel. Paul says that they see foolishness. The gospel, he says in 1 Corinthians, is folly to the world. It is foolishness to the world. But to those of us who are being saved, to those who are being sanctified, who have been given eyes to see, we see in the gospel not folly, but the wisdom of God. Paul wanted to take God's wisdom and put it on display by simply telling the story that God already wrote a long time ago and is merely putting it into action now. Paul's job as an apostle was to put the wisdom of God on display through the gospel. Now, I've kind of already hinted at it to some degree, but the question is, is who's watching? If we talk about putting something on display, putting something in a museum, the, the purpose of the apostles was to take the gospel which was hidden and make it known, and in so doing put God's wisdom on display. Who is it on display for? Now it certainly is on, is on display for us and for the world, but we actually understand that only by extension. According to the text, there's a very specific group of people. Well, I shouldn't call, I don't know if even people is the right word. There are very specific persons That the gospel has been made manifest too. And who does Paul say? Look again with me at verse 10. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We've talked about this phrase many times before in our sermon series. In the New Testament, this power, rulers, powers, and authorities in heavenly places is a reference to angels and demons. They are the powers of the air. They are the spiritual powers in the heavenly places. Paul is telling us that one of the, if not the primary audience to see the wisdom of God on display are angels and fallen angels, which we call demons. This is amazing. You see, what God is doing in the church, he has taken the world and he's essentially used the world as his Broadway stage. And he says, I'm going to take all of these spiritual forces, I'm going to gather them around, and I'm going to make them see. I'm going to make them watch what I'm doing in the world. To the angels, this is an incredible glory. The angels are peering, they are sitting on the edge of heaven with their popcorn." And they are watching, and they are amazed. Look at what our God is doing. God is making his wisdom on display for them. They're looking at the Christian church. They're looking at you and me. They're looking at what God is doing in Roswell, in New Mexico, in Africa, in Asia. They see the amazing work of God from this grand scope, and they think, our God is infinitely wise. This is incredible. These are the things that they long to look into, and they now get to see it. They're watching the greatest movie ever made. They're reading the best book ever written, and they can't put it down. Now, to the demons, it's a horror story. This is a horror movie to the demons. Because the demons are seeing their demise play out right before their eyes. They are seeing this God is too wise to be stopped All of our efforts against the church, all of our efforts against his people, all of our efforts against his gospel are coming to no avail. The demons are watching their own judgment and destruction roll out before their eyes. God has taken the gospel, he has saved the church, he's put it on display, and he's invited all of creation to come and gaze at his wisdom. That's what Paul wants from the Ephesians. He wants them to look at what God has done with them. And shout out, our God is infinitely wise. As a matter of fact, he, Paul uses this phrase manifold wisdom in the ESV. Your Bible translations might say something different. But that is actually just a poetic way for Paul to say that God's wisdom cannot be counted. God's wisdom cannot be measured. His manifold wisdom, it is, it is infinite. God's wisdom is absolutely Infinite. And because God's wisdom is infinite, this is why Paul can actually describe him in Romans 16 as the only wise God. Meaning, when we call other people wise here on earth from a human perspective, um, we're, we're not being totally accurate in how we say it. Because if you want to be really, really technical, only God is wise. I hate to break it to you, if you thought you were wise, at least compared to God, you're not. You can reflect the wisdom of God in your life. You can gain wisdom and become more like God, and we will call you wise, and we call that analogically speaking, where your growth in wisdom becomes like an analogy for God's wisdom. So we can, to use a technical term, analogically describe one another as wise. But the Bible is very clear that God alone is truly wise. And why do we say that? Because God alone is infinitely wise. And what does that mean to be infinitely wise? That means a number of things. First and foremost, that means that God can't actually grow in wisdom. Wisdom cannot grow with God. There's no room for infinite to get bigger. You and I can gain wisdom. We do gain wisdom. Hopefully, over time, we gain a lot. We can lose wisdom. We can become less wise. So, wisdom is like this thing outside of ourselves that can grow and decrease within us but for God wisdom is not this thing outside of himself that grows and it's just infinitely who he is and if his wisdom is infinite then that means his wisdom is get this identical to himself because there's not room for two infinite things you can't have an infinite God and infinite wisdom if they're separate things there's not enough room in the infinite box for two infinities does that make sense God alone is wise because He is infinitely wise, which means wisdom is Himself. So in a very real sense, we don't actually think God is wise, we think God is wisdom. He is wisdom itself. Which, by the way, in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ is often personified as wisdom. We grow in wisdom. God is wisdom. He is the only wise God. With him is abundant, everlasting, infinite wisdom. This led Stephen Charnock, one of my favorite theologians of all time. I love the way that he describes the wisdom of God. Charnock goes on to say this, Wisdom is the royalty of God. It's the proper dialect of all of his ways and works. No creature can lay claim to it. He is so wise that he is wisdom itself. It is the dialect of all his works, meaning everything he does is perfectly and infinitely wise. God, through the gospel, is showing us, and proving to us that he is infinitely wise. If you were to leave this morning, and someone would say, "Hey, what'd you learn in church today?" She say, "I you say this. I learned that through the gospel, God has made it abundantly clear." That he is wise and I am not. That he is infinitely wise. Now let's conclude with some applications, shall we? I think we've gotten the heart of the message here that Paul has been called to proclaim the gospel and in so doing the whole world sees that God is the greatest storyteller ever, that he is unraveling this incredibly wise plan. And that's why, by the way, Paul tells them, look at verse 13 with me. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Remember, he wrote this from prison and he said last week, I wrote this from prison because of you. I got in prison trying to reach you. He's telling them, don't feel guilty about that. Don't feel bad about that. I'm more blessed than you are. I'm I'm more blessed than you are. This is a privilege and this is for your glory. So he's telling them, don't feel bad about my imprisonment. Everything's okay. God's infinitely wise. We're we're okay. So how is it that we take this this message that we serve the only wise God, the infinitely wise God? How can this apply to our lives? I've come up with a handful of ways. The first way that I think God's wisdom should apply to your life is peace. I, I have all of these begin with a P just to try to help you remember. The first one is peace. You should be at peace. Here's what I mean. Competent leadership is supposed to bestow peace in whoever's following, right? If you're part of an organization and you don't trust the person leading you, you're not going to be at peace, right? If you get into an airplane and you find out the guy who's flying the plane has never flown before and has no technical training, are you going to rest comfortable in that flight? No, I don't trust that this guy knows what he's doing and he's steering me. My whole life is in his hands. I'm not at peace. It's not fun to be part of a nation if you don't trust your leaders. It's not fun to be on a football team if you don't trust the coach or the quarterback. When you don't trust that the people in charge of me don't... If if you don't trust that they know what they're doing, you will not be at peace. But here's the good news that we've learned today. That there is someone who's in control of all of human history. He's in control of absolutely everything that's happening. And by the way, we get that from verses 9 through 11. Read read verse 9 with me again. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And look at verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's what Paul's saying about the gospel. Do not think that the gospel was like God playing chess with the devil. God is not a chess player. He's an author. God did not just let the dreidel of creation spin and go, okay, if something goes wrong, I bet I can figure out how to fix it. And then Satan starts attacking the church and he thinks, ah, I see your move, but I'll raise you one. I can do this. God is not playing chess. The gospel is not God's plan B, it's not his reaction to everything going wrong. He planned this eternally. This is his story. Satan is not throwing a wrench in his plans, but then, oh, I'll figure out. Everything that's happening is what God put in his eternal book. He is in control of the flow of history. He's not just reacting to it. He's writing it. God is in control of absolutely everything. And the one who's in control is wisdom itself. The one who is in control is infinitely wise. So let me ask you, how much peace should you have when you put your head on your pillow tonight? The captain of our ship has infinite wisdom. To put it colloquially, God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And if you forget that, remind yourself of the gospel. Because it's in the gospel that the manifold wisdom of God is put on display. So you should sleep with a lot of peace tonight. It doesn't mean you're always going to understand what's happening in the world. The captain does not always tell the people under him every detail of the plan. We don't always know why everything happens the way it does. We can be in pain, we can be confused, we can be hurt, but you should never be anxious because the universe is in control of the only wise God. So what does God's wisdom mean for your life? It means you should be at peace. Another application, the wisdom of God should fill you with praise. Praise. Should fill you with praise. You see, when we encounter a person that demonstrates great wisdom, it's a natural thing to engage in some kind of praise of them. Just to give one example, I, I mentioned falling in love with, with books recently, and um, one of my favorite stories, I've, I've, re- I've mentioned it from the pulpit more than once. I probably should tone it down a little bit, but I just love Lord of the Rings. And for the first time this last year and a half, I read through The Hobbit and all three of The Lord of the Rings books, and I'm going to read this in the similar, I just love Lord of the Rings. And when I read it, I think one of the things that makes me so in love with it is I just feel like the author is so wise. I mean, the story is so complex, and there's so many details, it just doesn't seem made up. Like, how did a person think of all this? I mean, he, I, I've even found out that he actually invented languages, multiple languages for all of his characters. You can actually go to school and learn languages he made up. It's incredibly wise, and because it's so wise, there are people out there who borderline worship J.R.R. Tolkien. There are people who dedicate their whole lives to Lord of the Rings, and they can tell you every last thing. They can tell you about his life, when he was born, when he died. They've read every last word he's ever written multiple times. You've got a question about Lord of the Rings, they can answer it. And whenever there's a movie, they know exactly how to critique it. They, they, their whole wall, their bedroom walls, are just filled with Lord of the Rings posters. They see the wisdom of Tolkien, and it makes them praise him. And so I ask you rhetorically, how much more When God's infinite wisdom is put on display, should we praise Him? If people who love Tolkien can read Lord of the Rings multiple times a year, how much more should we be reading our Bibles multiple times a year? This is a better book than Lord of the Rings. It's much better. We should know it inside and out. We should know everything about this author. He's so incredible, he's so wise, he's so amazing. People should be able to ask us a question, and I know it, because I've dedicated my life to him. Why? Because he's wise beyond comprehension, because I love the stories he tells. How much more, when we meditate on the wisdom of God, should our hearts just be filled with praise? He's so incredible. And by the way, we also need to keep in mind that here, Paul is specifically emphasizing the wisdom of God in the gospel. But the Bible is clear that the gospel is not the only place where God's wisdom is put on display. For example, uh, I don't have this on the screen, but you can hear the words of Psalm 104:24. O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. What is the psalmist saying there? He's saying, where can you see the wisdom of God? In creation. If, if you're not, if you're struggling, if your heart is struggling to see it in the gospel, go watch a nature documentary. No, I'm not saying everything in there is going to be true. Go to the mountains and just meditate on creation. Look at the stars at night. Uh, just yesterday I was doing lawn work and it wasn't fun. I was pulling a lot of weeds. And I really shouldn't call them weeds. I should call them trees. I was pulling trees out of my yard. And there was this one place on, on the side of my house that just... I don't even know what to call them. Vines, weeds, I don't know what to call them. But they're just, you know, they, they start in the ground and they just covered the whole house. And so I'm having to yank these weeds off of, off of my house. And what's amazing is I'd start to yank and they'd resist me. Think, what is going on here? So I'd go and I would look and there'd be these little vines that would go up the house. And then around these vines would be even smaller little vines that wrap themselves around all the cords and bricks of my house. In other words, God created this plant that literally grabs onto the wall and hugs it. And it's like little rock climbers. I remember watching a rock climbing documentary and how they they find a little crack in the wall and they put their, their clip in there and then the pressure. There were little cracks in the concrete and this little vine would put its hand in there. Like I was having to rip hands off of my wall. I remember thinking, who made this? You know, it's like a burden to me, but if I stop and reflect, this is incredible. It's like this thing has a mind of its own. You will never convince me that this happened by accident. I see the wisdom of an author on display here. Study your own body. The Bible says, in wisdom are all of your works the earth is full of your creatures, the human body will amaze you. You want to see how creative God is? Just study the human body. A single cut, you get a little paper cut, and you just go, ow, and then you forget about it, and it heals. You know what's happening at a microscopic level there? Your body sends a SWAT team called white blood cells, and a SWAT team shows up and destroys all of the intruders. And then your body also sends a little, a bunch of Ralphs, a little construction team, and they rebuild your skin together. There is a story happening in every paper cut. That's the wisdom of God on display for you. And we could go on and on and on. You talk about the universe, you talk about, look at the gospel, look at the creation, and praise God, he is infinitely wise. He's just amazing. The wisdom of God should fill us with peace. It should fill us with praise. The wisdom of God, pointer application number three, should lead us to preach. It should lead us to preaching. The wisdom of God should compel us to preach the gospel. Whenever we encounter an incredibly wise story, have you ever read a, a book or you've watched a movie and you just have this like uncontrollable desire to tell people about it? Sometimes it can be really annoying for the people. I mean, God bless my wife. Right now I'm reading a, a classic book called Frankenstein. And it's like the, the original story. And it's, it's amazing. I love this book. And every single night, it takes every ounce of energy to not turn to my wife while we're laying in bed and say, okay, let me tell you about this chapter that I just read. She doesn't care. And I'm trying so hard not to tell her. But I just want, I, I want to join a book club or something. It's so good, I want to talk about it. There are some stories that are just so good, you're just compelled. Like, you haven't seen that movie? Okay, let me tell you. And then they say, no spoilers, no spoilers. Like, sorry, sorry, I just, I want to talk about it. If the gospel is as wise as Paul says it is, if the gospel is this amazing story, should we not be compelled to tell people about it? I can't tell you how often times, say, Layla or or even Elder Jesse have said, hey, there's this new documentary, you got to watch it. It's too good not to share this with others. You've got to see it. How much more should we be doing that with God's story of the gospel? How much more should we just be everywhere we go, guys, oh, you haven't heard about Jesus? Let me tell you this story. We should just be absolutely compelled to share the greatest story ever told. Now, I, I do understand why this story is so much particularly harder to tell than Frankenstein. That's because I could maybe tell someone about the book I'm reading, it might annoy them, but for the most part, they're just going to blow it off. I understand that the hesitancy with the gospel is when you tell that story, a lot of times they don't just blow it off. A lot of times they blow you off forever. People that you've loved dearly your entire life. A lot of times they do more than blow you off. And they hurt you, or they persecute you, or they mock you, or they insult you. And it's very painful. So I understand that. I'm not trying to be one of those insensitive pastors that just comes with a whip and says, why aren't you sharing the gospel more? It's so easy. It's not. It's not an easy story to tell. But can I just, and, and by the way, I, this is a weakness of my own. I don't even think I'm leading the way in this very well. I need to be sharing the gospel with my neighbors more than I am. So please don't hear me preaching at you. We're, we're preaching together right now. The gospel is too good for us to be so silent about it. Like we just have to be, it's, it's just too good of a story to not tell it more than we do. And, and here's what I would recommend to all of us, myself included. It's amazing how many times, the few times in my life that I have been given by the Spirit an incredible amount of boldness to share the gospel. And sometimes things have gone really badly. But I've never regretted it. I've, I've always left and just been praising God and I've been thank, thankful for it. There's something about the joy of getting to share that message that I think you'll be surprised how often it overcomes all of the bad that brings your way. And by the way, I think that this is exactly what Paul experienced. And let me show you why. Look at verse 7 with me. Paul Paul says this in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. And then to our verse, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. How does Paul view the call to preach the gospel? He views it as a divine grace. He says, I'm lucky to be able to do this. Okay? Paul sees this as good. This is awesome. I get to preach the gospel. Now let me ask you rhetorically. Where was Paul writing this letter from? Prison. The very thing that he's saying, I am so lucky to do this, is ruining his life. And we can read from other scriptures in the Bible where Paul talks about how he was stoned on one occasion, he was beaten senseless on multiple occasions, he was shipwrecked, he was persecuted. The, the preaching of the gospel has brought nothing to Paul except for scars and chains. And yet, he tells the Ephesians, Boy, am I lucky. And you know why? Because remember, what did he say? It's his duty to bring to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. I think what Paul's communicating to us is that yeah, his life is really, really hard but sharing the gospel, the joy that it brings is way better. Prison's worth it. I get to share the gospel. I get to see Gentiles who were far from God get saved. I think we might be surprised that the more and more we gain the courage to preach the gospel. Yes, it's going to make our lives harder, but I think it's going to make them so much more fulfilling and so much more enjoyable. Paul goes to prison and praises God. I think we will be able to praise God when bad things happen because there's just so much joy in getting to tell someone about the best book I've ever read. The wisdom of God should fill us with peace, should fill us with praise. It should fill us with preaching, and lastly, although I'm, I'm cheating a little bit with this word, the wisdom of God should compel us to be philosophers. The wisdom of God should make us love philosophy. Now, I don't mean that in the sense we mean today. Although philosophy is good, you should study philosophy in the sense that I mean it today. But I mean it in its more literal sense. Do you know what the word philosophy means? It's a it's a compound of two Greek roots. Who knows what the word philosophy means? means lover of wisdom. At, At its heart, a philosopher is someone who wants to be more wise. They seek out wisdom. They love wisdom. And so I'm asking this very simple question. If God is infinitely wise and we want to be like God, what does that say about what we should desire? We should desire wisdom. God's wisdom means that we should pursue wisdom because, you see, the Bible loves wisdom. Many Psalms are dedicated to wisdom. The entire book of Proverbs is about wisdom. As a matter of fact, when we talk about our Old Testaments, we break the books up into categories, and there are three primary categories that we speak of the Old Testament in. We'll talk about the law, we'll talk about the prophets, but there's a middle category that we call wisdom literature. Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, books that are dedicated to making you more wise. God has taken a huge portion of his book and dedicated it to give it to you to say, you should seek wisdom. You should not just seek knowledge, you should seek wisdom. Wisdom is something incredibly important for Christians. As a matter of fact, the sign of an immature Christian is oftentimes a resistance to wisdom. And what I mean by that is immature Christians love to flirt with the sin line. They love to just say, okay, now that I'm a Christian, tell me everything that I'm allowed to do so that I can go do it. And then they'll have older Christians coming in their life and say, okay, you know what? Maybe you're technically allowed to do this, but I don't think it's wise. I don't think it's good for you. But it's not a sin, but it's not a sin, so I'm going to do it. Christians who have no care for wisdom, and they just, okay, I'm just going to do what I'm allowed to do. I'll do everything I can that I'm allowed to do. And the Bible does not call us to that. Yes, it's good to avoid sin, but the Bible calls us to go beyond just merely avoiding sin. And we get this from places like 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says this in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful all things are lawful for me but I will not be dominated by anything you see Paul is telling people yeah something might be lawful but that doesn't mean it's helpful and wisdom is how you know the difference between I'm allowed to do this but I still shouldn't that's wisdom we want to live lives where we're not just merely not sinning but we're actually pursuing is this beneficial is this productive is this helpful and that takes wisdom to know Wisdom is a crucial part to living a full, mature Christian life. Another important sign, another sign of Christians who are resistant to wisdom is Christians who do not respect their elders. Christians who do not respect their elders. And I don't mean that in terms of pastors. I mean that in terms of people who are older than them. Christians who have been walking with the Lord longer than them, respecting our parents and the older saints in our midst. Because you see, in my experience, wisdom is something that is learned over time with experience. Humans often learn wisdom through trial and error. Knowledge is something you can learn quickly. Knowledge is something you can learn in a YouTube video. Knowledge is something you can get a degree and learn, but wisdom takes time. And there are too many Christians that I've experienced in my own life, and I've even experienced this to myself, who are so obsessed with knowledge that they neglect all wisdom. They're happy to sit at the feet of the man with five PhDs, but they don't give two cares for what grandpa says. Because he's just an electrician. What does he know? This arrogant view of knowledge over wisdom. One of my favorite uh, apologists one time said, the dumbest people I know oftentimes have PhDs. Some of the dumbest people I know have PhDs. Because wisdom and knowledge are not the same thing. Not wisdom is something that comes through living a long, mature life, walking with the Lord. And so if we want to grow in wisdom, we will sit at the feet of the people who have it. And the gray hair is more of an indication than the PhD. We need to obey the Bible, which calls us to be respectful of our elders, to sit at the feet and learn from people who have gone where we're about to go who have seen the things that we're about to see. That is someone who loves not just knowledge, but wisdom. Christians need to show humility around seasoned Christians and become lovers of wisdom. So those are your four applications to this amazing message that God is infinitely wise. Be filled with peace. Be filled with praise. Preach the gospel and pursue wisdom. Let us end with a doxology from Romans chapter 11. I would invite you actually to stand before we sing. And you can just hear these words, but I think this is the most appropriate way to conclude this sermon. We're not concluding the service here, just the sermon. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor?